Welcome this morning. Glad to have you here. We continue in our study of First Timothy. We are in chapter 3. And so if you have your copy of the scriptures, First Timothy chapter 3. We will look at the first seven verses today. Uh, the first seven verses. Uh, these deal particularly with the office uh, qualifications for the office of pastor or overseer. Uh, maybe you've heard the word shepherd, um, elder, uh, maybe bishop. There's kind of lots of terminology floating around uh, in the pastoral epistles. And we're going to try to clean some of that up for you this morning as we work through this text. But primarily, uh, the text today is going to deal with overseers. Next will be uh, deacons and then with uh, women who are considered helpers in the church uh, as we finish out the chapter. So. Before we get started, I would ask that you join me in prayer. Gracious Father, we come before you as the one who has given the rock of ages on our behalf. And Christ, we thank you that you would take our sin upon yourself, that you would remind us that as your people, we are redeemed. And Lord, as your people, we are also people that need our shepherd. And Christ is our uh, head shepherd. But in your wisdom, you have given to the church under shepherds, those who on behalf of you would seek to protect and to lead your people, uh, to point them back to you and to remind even themselves that they are a needy people because you are the God who supplies all need. Help us this day that we hear Holy Spirit and what we hear that we would obey and in obeying that we would show our love not only for you, but also for those who are our neighbors. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us from all sin. Amen. Let's read our text first, beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, Hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, then how will he care for God's church? Now, we must not, he must not be a recent convert or he may be, become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, having addressed the importance of apostolic doctrine in chapter 1 and then of the conduct of public worship in chapter 2, Paul turns now to the oversight of the church and the necessary qualifications for the overseer, the pastor maybe, uh, for deacons and for women helpers here in chapter 3. Now, without overstating the obvious, um, the health of every church really depends on the quality, the faithfulness, and the teaching of its ordained ministers. In vernacular terms, we would say, uh, so goes the, the uh, leaders, so goes the church. Uh, whatever church has leaders and whatever those deficiencies may be, the church over time tends to mirror those. And whatever the strengths are of those leaders, the church over time tends to mirror those. Therefore, you will never find a perfect church. 
Uh, it just doesn't exist. As great as we love one another in our congregation, our church has weaknesses. And many times those weaknesses are directly attached to us as leaders. And we have our own struggles as we try to overcome those because we know that many times so goes the leaders, so goes the church. And yet still, far from being a man-made position, pastors and elders and overseers are established by God. It is Christ who gave these leaders to the church to be pastors and teachers according to Ephesians 4.11. And the Holy Spirit still assigns overseers to his church today, Acts chapter 20. Now, in Paul's time, uh, overseer and elder were two titles for the same office. And you're thinking to yourself, much like I am, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just stick with one title and use it consistently? It makes reading a lot easier if I'm not having to think through switching back and forth all the time. But there is a good distinction and a reason why Paul did this. The word elder was Jewish in origin, and every synagogue had elders. Now, the elder uh, there is indicates kind of the seniority of their leadership or their role. They tended to be, well, let's use the word, they tended to be elders, right? In their age, they tended to be elders, Now, that's the idea that we see here of uh, the uh, word elder. Now, overseer is Greek in origin. So now we've got a Jewish kind of background and we've got a Greek background. And it's a title that was given to people, uh, usually men who were overseeing cities. They were supervisors out in the what you and I might call the secular world. And uh, they were superintending laws and they were superintending People. In simple terms, the overseer refers to a function of giving oversight to the church, and the elder refers to the life stage or the experience that coincides with him living his life out in the community of the church. And then you have the word uh, shepherd or pastor. Now, this is a the shepherd would be a metaphor, right, for pastor, but the But the metaphor is for personal care of the members of the church. Now, the biblical pattern for a group of elders is to give joint oversight to a local congregation with one or several pastors being primarily uh, devoted to teaching and providing pastoral care. At our church, we follow this plurality of elders model. I'm not the pastor. Now, you tend to see me up here on Sunday teaching more uh, than the other uh, elder that we have now. Uh, But the reality is he's a pastor just like I'm a pastor, right? He's an elder just like I'm an elder. And when we had Scott here just a few months ago, we had three, right? And we had three pastors. And so maybe some of us that come from a Baptist background tend to think of one guy. That's usually the guy that we see here on Sunday morning, you know, kind of being the pastor, Uh, But the reality is the biblical model shows us a plurality of elders or a plurality of pastors. And so our congregation has that same thing that we uh, have here in our church. Now, in today's text, um, it's bookended by two spheres or arenas of influence regarding the pastor or overseer. Now, in verse 1, regards this sphere of influence or reputation inside the church. And in verse 7, the sphere of reputation 
outside the church. So the qualifications that are going to be given for these men who should be overseers or elders or pastors, uh, there are two places you could go to make sure that he's a man of the character that he claims to be inside the church and with those outside the church. Paul also gives four basic requirements of pastors of the church. He begins by emphasizing that a desire for leadership is a good thing and and insists that leaders must be a certain kind of person. First, must be a person whose character is above reproach. Now, for a church to appoint unqualified persons to leadership is a sin, and those appointing them share the responsibility when that person fails or brings damage to the church. Second, elders must also have proven ability uh, of leading people. Leading people. And then third, they must be spiritually mature. And fourth, he must have a good reputation in the eyes of the people outside the church. If you think that's kind of strange, why would it matter how he's viewed outside the church? You Wouldn't you think, well, it's his job of what he's doing inside the church? But it does matter because the gospel witness and what a lot of First Timothy is about has a lot to do with how he's seen outside the walls of the church. If that man's the type of man that has a bad reputation outside the church, do you think that non-Christians would want to come to that church? Maybe they would say they see hypocrisy. All right, so this outside the church is extremely important, but inside the church is important too. So now that these basic requirements have been summarized, let's begin in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. Now here we have the second time that Paul has spoken about a trustworthy saying. The first time was in chapter 1, verse 15. And in Paul's day, a trustworthy saying was just kind of like a common proverb. It was known by people. It was something that was accepted. And in this case, uh, this saying is trustworthy, uh, that people kind of know that it is a, um, or it's common knowledge that the office of an elder or an overseer is important and it's significant work. Now, despite the fact that some leaders in Ephesus had performed poorly, remember, Paul is writing to offset the false teachers uh, who are teaching uh, and leading people away from Christ. So despite that some of those leaders inside the church of Ephesus Ephesus had performed poorly, the office of overseer is one of nobleness and a highly desirable task. So what about this trustworthy saying? The saying itself, we read there, if anyone aspires to the office or maybe... We could say anyone sets his heart on uh, being an overseer. He desires a noble task. Now, the pastorate is a noble task. It's designed that way, even here stated that way, because it involves the care and the nurture of God's people. And that's a good thing to desire. To want to care for your brothers and sisters in Christ is a very good thing to desire. But human desire alone is not enough. God has a say-so in who is to be leading and who is to be caring for his people. So then what is the essential, uh, what is essential for a man desiring to be an overseer in the church? Well, according to Paul, there are three things, three things that are essential for this man who desires to be an overseer. One is the call of God through the gifting of the Holy Spirit. 
Second, there is this inner desire or the conviction of the man it's himself. And then third, there is the purposeful screening by the church as to whether he meets the requirements which Paul is going to share in these next verses. So we see God involved. We see the person involved wanting and desiring that. But we also see the church involved who verifies that they see this inside this man. Right. In our, usually in our denomination, people really elevate the personal call of God. God told me, God called me to be a pastor. We elevate that uh, maybe in an unhealthy way. Many times the, some men who have that calling run roughshod over other people because they, they feel like they have this uh, divine calling. And yet what we see is that that calling has to be submissive to the church. And God, through his spirit, will speak to the church. I promise you, God will speak. And, and when the church speaks through the spirit and the word and what God has done, then that's what we go with. So let's look at these next verses as he begins to tease out um, what is required. Now, the next six verses in this text present four general statements summarizing the qualifications for the overseer. And these are first that the overseer was to be obedient in observable behavior. Verses two and three. Notice that what we're going to look at in verses two and three, all these things you can observe from the outside. There's things that you can see observable behavior. And then both Christians and non-Christians, according to verse 7, needed to see this man's Christian commitment and his ethic worked out in his lifestyle. It's not just enough to speak the words. There needs to be a consistency in the way the life is lived also. Second, the overseer was to lead his own family well. We see this in verses 4 and 5. Paul viewed leadership in the family as a proving ground for the leadership in the church. Third, the overseer needed uh, experience in his Christian walk, verse 6. If a new convert is brought in and put into this place of leadership, uh, he could be blinded by a cloud of pride. And finally, the, the overseer or the elder uh, needs the respect of outsiders in verse 7. These outsiders might not prefer his doctrine or his morals. They might find them repulsive, especially in our day and age. Uh, but the thing that they do is they respect him. They respect him and his integrity and his commitment to those morals, even if those morals are not exactly what they think the way the world should be run. Now, these four general statements in these six verses are further teased out in verse 2 with seven positive traits of maturity. In verse 3, with four negative ones. And then after this, Paul further discusses in verses 4 through 7, three other traits in greater detail, giving us a total of 14 traits. Now, I put an insert in your bulletin this morning uh, showing you where we are in the outline of the book. Highlighted that in red for you. And I'll, I'll keep doing that for you so you can keep the flow going. But I also left you some area down there with this particular outline. There's a lot of little different pieces and and it would be easy if you're a note taker just to be able to pencil those in as we move along so i i've offered that to you do not feel uh bad if you're not a note taker and and that's not part of what you want to do but for those who do want to it's there all right so let's look at the seven positive provisions that paul lists for 
qualifications of an overseer in verses 2 and 3. They read this. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Now, we'll get into the nots and the negatives, but let's look at the first seven. Paul begins with the general characteristic of an overarching trajectory of the life of the man. He labels this above reproach, all right? So this above reproach, this characteristic kind of summarizes all the traits that are listed in this section. The word describes a person of such character that no one can properly bring against him a charge of unfitness. Now, above reproach does not mean, and it cannot mean, faultless. I know it's used this way by a lot of people, uh, especially when they've had a pastor or an elder that they've uh, they don't care for much. They say, well, he's not above reproach. You know, he has this problem. And if, if it was the case that you had to be faultless to be an elder, you wouldn't have elders in the world. I mean, that's just the reality. We're all sinners, right? We all have our own faults. Uh, now, there's things listed here that if this was your fault, you would not be qualified. So it would keep you out of the office. Uh, but as Christians and even as humans, we know that we all have faults. So therefore, above reproach does not mean faultless. Um, it really means is it's, uh, he has a blameless reputation. All right, He has a blameless reputation. Any man that would be able to have his wife speak well of him, who's seen him inside his home, and he can still have a good reputation, that's a good thing, right? Because you're... You're kind of real around the people you're around all day long, aren't you? There could be people on the outside that see you as blameless and maybe the wife or the, the wife says, yeah, yeah, but you, you don't have to live with that guy, right? You don't have to live with that guy. The reality here is he has a reputation that's blameless. It has to do with irreproachable, observable conduct, all right? He doesn't have these these really big warts of problems and, and all of those big problems that we tend to see, especially when the news presents usually a fallen minister, uh, they're all caught in this list, right? They've been addressed and maybe with due diligence and this being used as a list, maybe that man would not have made it into that position and maybe he wouldn't be on the six o'clock news if the church had done what it should have, according to the scriptures. So it's the idea of a blameless reputation, not faultless. See, this provides a biblical warrant for requiring personal references if a church is going to bring on a new minister uh, so that this candidate's public reputation could be confirmed, verified, and attested to. Now, having looked at this overarching trait... Paul now begins his specific list of qualifications for the office. Now, Paul's discussion has little to say about duties. I want you to notice this. This is really big in this section. Paul is honing in on character traits of integrity and action. There's only one thing that's stated in here that's a duty. He has to be able to teach. Everything else listed here deals with integrity and character. See, Paul didn't mention, other than able to teach, the function of the overseer. But the primary effort, remember, he's, he's trying to 
dislodge false teachers from the, from the Ephesian church and have Timothy put in good men to replace them so that the church could stay on track with what it's called to do. And this that he's trying to do is that he could bring in these new leaders that would have a high commitment to Christ and would be encouraging themselves and others in godliness and in unity. And to assure this, Paul lays out some undeniable, necessary, personal characteristics. I'm really stressing that. These are necessary. Paul starts with the foundation of what is necessary and normal within the church, and that is the importance of the sanctity of marriage as, God, as image bearers of God. The overseer must be a husband of one wife. Now, there are a few ways to interpret this. There is much ink that has been bled over this one qualification. Husband of one wife. I think there have been actually books written on this statement. Um, It is so dragged out of proportion and context these days that it's almost in some way scary. But, but let's look at a few of the options uh, that, of way of interpreting this husband of one wife. It could be uh, in regards to that Paul is prohibiting polygamy in the person who, is, who believes he's called to be an overseer. Now, polygamy is the idea of simultaneously marrying multiple spouses, one husband, two or three wives, uh, if you're, you're thinking about maybe Utah and, and, and Mormonism, that type of stuff, right? Uh, it tends to be that way. Uh, I don't think that that's really what's uh, in, at stake here. Uh, it was, that polygamy wasn't really a big problem uh, in this first century. I mean, adultery and fornication, those things were, but polygamy is not the big thing. So I, I don't know that this husband and woman wife really is, that's the one thing that Paul's trying to say. It does do that. Don't get me wrong. It does prohibit that. But that's, I don't think that's what Paul's getting at. Maybe he was demanding that the overseer be a married man. That he couldn't be single. That he had to be married because he's the husband of one wife. However, Paul's own singleness and his positive view of the single state out of 1 Corinthians 7 would seem to allow a single man to serve as an overseer. All right. Some believe that the passage rules out marriage if his first wife dies. But Paul clearly permitted in other passages for people whose spouses died to remarry, 1 Timothy 5 and Romans 7. And I don't think that Paul's one of those kind of guys that tends to contradict himself. And so I don't think that it's if the first wife dies, he can no longer be an overseer. So maybe... And this is probably the big one that we hear about these days. Maybe what Paul is doing is he's prohibiting a divorced man from serving as a pastor. Now, while this can be Paul's meaning, the language just saying husband or wife is really too general to say that has to be the only way that I can interpret this text. And what would we to do if the man who was married actually had been divorced prior to becoming a Christian? Should we hold his pre-conversion sin, as some would say, against him? And now he's no longer, he's not qualified because something that happened in his life prior to becoming a Christian? I don't think that this really here is what Paul's driving home. 
about the only way to interpret this is he can't be divorced. One of the reasons why I think that's the case, because if Paul wanted to say that, he has a few Greek words that he could draw from that he could insert right here and just say it. And he doesn't do that. So finally, I think it's better to see Paul having demanded that the church leader be faithful to his one wife. Now, the Greek describes the overseer as literally a one-woman kind of man. Faithful to his one wife. That's what I think the text is pushing for. He, he wants to see a fidelity in the man's marriage that can stand the test of time. And that makes sense if you start looking at other passages of Scripture, especially if you take um, the example of Christ and the church as kind of the template for what a man and his wife and his marriage should look like. And so I do think the husband of one wife in this state here, in this occasion, what it's really pushing for, and Paul's listing it, as is that he's a one-woman kind of man. He's not, he's not um, committing adultery. He's not flirtatious. Uh, he's not out there uh, eyeing other women. What he's doing is he's, he's devoted to his wife, and he's devoted to his family. Now, continuing on in these seven positive traits, Paul lists three traits which really point to the idea of self-mastery. First, sober-minded. It shows that the church leader had to be free from rash actions. Although the word could describe self-control with regard to the use of alcohol, I don't think that's the point here. He's going to address alcohol in the next verse. Uh, So I don't think that's what, when you use the word sober-minded, I don't think he's trying to say alcohol with the word sober. I think what he's really pushing for here, it's a mental self-control where he uh, rules out all forms of excess Someone who was sober and balanced in their spirit and even in their demeanor. You kind of see him as a stable person. He thinks well. He thinks clearly. The second listed here is that he is self-controlled. Now this pictures a leader as a sensible person. He's described as one who is trustworthy and balanced in judgment. He's not flitting around. He's not unstable in his beliefs. He's not the double-minded man of James chapter 2. This would be an essential trait for the character of an overseer. Also note that this is a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit gives to all Christians when he comes to indwell or to reside with them, self-control. So it's a major Christian trait to be self-controlled. The third is he is to be respectable. That demands dignity and orderliness and behavior. It's not merely a demand for good upbringing or impeccable manners, but it describes a person whose orderly outward life is a reflection of an inward stability. An orderly outward life that is reflected because there's an inward stability. Now Paul is going to share two traits or outward expressions which primarily involve others. The first is hospitable. Now hospitable means to love the love of strangers. And hospitality is a telltale sign and virtue of the people of God. Throughout history, Christians have been known to be very hospitable people. That's one of the traits that we have as Christians. 
Paul told the church in Rome to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, Romans 12, 13. This idea of seeking to show is to pursue or to chase and to sometimes mean strenuous pursuit. Christians and especially leaders are not simply to wait for opportunities of hospitality to come to them, but they are to go and seek that out. We started at the beginning of this year uh, the kind of CTK hospitality in the home. And immediately we had a number of people who came up uh, just voluntarily and said, I want to open my home and have people over. And throughout this year, you'll be getting invitations from different people in the congregation to come share a meal in their home. It's a way to get to know one another. It's a way to see each other outside of Sunday morning, which sometimes can be a little superficial. You know, this hospitality is something that's a very Christian trait. It's very Christian. An elder must be a joyous host as he invites people to his table. His home must be open. We have hospitality presented all over the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, offers a a fascinating motivation on why you should be hospitable. Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 2 says, um, I'm sorry, um, 13, yeah, 13, 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You just don't know, right? Now, the task of caring for Christians and other strangers was highly respected both in uh, the first century in the Christ, with Christians and with the Greek culture. And in our day, where we live in a world of virtual realities, where most people are not, faces aren't seen, whether there's kind of on-screen avatars or there's electronic friends, hospitality becomes one of those primary ways It's a front door to bringing outsiders into the church. To first bring them into your home and let them see you and your family interact in a very authentic way as Christians. I want to encourage you. Some of you um, struggle a little bit with can we do that. Maybe you think my home's too small, right? I have a small home because I have a small home. I can't invite a bunch of people over. You don't have to invite a bunch of people over. Just invite a few people over. You provide something, let them bring something. Y'all kind of meet together and have time together. If you're interested in learning more about this idea of hospitality and how it could be a wonderful outreach tool uh, to your neighbors and those around you, I want to recommend a book. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield has a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's a wonderful book. She's a great writer. Uh, if you know her story, she came out of the LGBTQAI plus community and, and uh, her life was radically changed. And she will tell you the primary method by which she started uh, asking things about uh, concerning God was because a pastor and his wife were inviting her into their home eating with her eventually on a weekly basis. And as she would share things with them, she realized, I know I don't believe and like the morals that they have, but I can't escape this generousness that they have and they keep coming after me, right? So think about that. Um, Rosaria Butterfield, the gospel comes with a house key. 
uh, that would be a good thing for you to look at. Now, of all the positive characteristics mentioned by Paul, it's the seventh one listed. It's the only activity in the church setting that's an actual duty or an activity, and that is able to teach, that he's able to teach. All other traits concern observable behaviors of the elder. Now, able to teach demands competence and skill in communicating Christian truth, and the trait requires intellectual and instructive ability. One who can teach others needs to be teachable himself. Just because he's teaching others doesn't mean that he can't learn something. Therefore, he also needs to have a teachable spirit. The presence of this requirement shows that an overseer needed the ability both to explain Christian doctrine and then also to refute or to oppose errors. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Paul's bringing these new men in, right? Asking Timothy to find these men and bring them into those positions of leadership because there were some bad apples in the bunch and he's trying to get the good ones in. And these men would need to be able to refute the errors of the false teachers. And therefore, it's the same thing today. See, he would use this skill of teaching and giving instruction to converts and building up the church and in correcting error. The fact that overseers must have the gift of teaching shows the church has no liberty. The church has no liberty to ordain any who God has not called and gifted. I won't get into what that may look like. Let's just say the church needs to stick with the scriptures and what's been given with the two offices and that, that would go, that would correct a lot of things. Now, to the seven positive traits of maturity listed in verse 2, Paul now adds four negative ones in verse 3. Not a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. The first negative qualification, not a drunkard, demands the church leader control his thirst for alcohol. Now, alcohol is a depressant. Alcohol is a depressant. It blunts and blurs the faculty and the judgment of the person. Now, here the word drunkard means someone who's addicted to wine. He's addicted to wine. So, therefore, what we're saying is Paul is not forbidding um, or prohibiting medicinal or occasional use of alcohol. 1 Timothy 5.23 Therefore, this is a reference to moderation rather than a statement of total abstinence. See, Paul didn't require total abstinence. Why? Well, well one, one reason why that may be the case is because Jesus himself changed water into wine and made wine the emblem of his blood. But I do want you to know there are strong social arguments for total abstinence of the overseer. Since much recklessness and violence... And immoral behavior is due to excessive drinking. But the key here is that Paul is requiring moderation as an example of self-mastery. Remember these things are in regard to what the man needs to have as far as control in his life. And therefore, I think moderation for Paul is key. Now, the second negative is not violent. This is a qualification sought by Paul so that they would not practice uh, browbeating people with threats of violence. Now, the term violent pictures a quick-tempered individual who, who would prefer to use his fist to take care of a problem than use reasoning and his mouth to alleviate a situation. 
Such a leader uses threats of bullying to, bl- to bludgeon people into conformity. And the violence that Paul describes here could have been an outgrowth of drunkenness since the two tend to go hand in hand. Been many, many times where a man has done some very irrational things because he's been drunk. Now, in contrast to practicing violence, the Christian leader is to be gentle. He is to be forbearing in his relationships, even with troublemakers. And the gentle man uses adaptability uh, in supervision and is flexible rather than rigid. In other words, he's gentle. Some words or synonyms, some other words that could be used in place of gentle are kind, yielding, forbearing, and considerate. Now, the third negative that we have here is not quarrelsome. Now, quarrelsome is someone who tends to be a verbal fighter. In this case, he actually could be a physical fighter because of what we've talked about with the alcohol, right? I mean, kind of hand in hand. There's some things that are connected here. But he's a verbal fighter. He's contentious. He's combative. He's cantankerous. And what Paul demanded in the church leader was a peaceable attitude that rejects all forms of threatening and fighting. See, Christian leaders who opposed these, uh, I'm sorry, Christian leaders who possessed these outward traits gave evidence of the inner control and of the commitment to Christ that they had because they lived lives of self-control. Such traits would be mandatory in meeting, opposing, and defeating the false teachers and teachings in Ephesus. Now, this fourth negative is the not a lover of money. Paul hints that, that there's a responsibility for the overseer to, uh, in, the, in the area of handling congregational finances. Now, the lover of money would be someone who is stingy, who is tight-fisted. I think Judas Iscariot would have been a great example of this lover of money. We know he was pilfering off of uh, the collection box anyway, uh, but he seems to have been trapped by the love of money and the upcoming elders uh, that Timothy is supposed to bring into play are not to have this as part of um, their livelihood. They tend to have get-rich-quick schemes rather than the souls of people on their mind. And such greed was a distinguishing feature of the false teachers in Ephesus, according to 1 Timothy 6. See, this, isn't, this is one of those negative traits uh, that was not to be found inside the church. You, you don't want to be known as a person who's a lover of money. Jesus had lots to say about that, that you can't love money and love God at the same time. He's not saying you can't have money. He's not even saying you can't have things and wealth. You just can't love them above God. And money's this strange thing in our world where it's very difficult once its tentacles have reached into different parts of our lives for us to unseat that and to give it its proper place in our lives. Now Paul is going to further discuss three traits of the overseer that we see detailed in verses 4 through 7. First is going to be in verses 4 and 5, that he is to manage his household well. And then in verse 6, that he can't be a new convert. And then in verse 7, which is the 14th or the last trait, he's to have a good reputation with those outside the church. Now the first of these last three traits is found in verses 4 and 5. Listen, let's read those. Verses 4 and 5. He must manage his household well 
with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now here Paul begins transferring. He's saying this this leadership that this man has in the home and in the house is now being transferred to leadership as a pattern for leading in the church. There's a connection between what's going on in the home and what's going to go on in the church. A connection in his family to the connection of what's going on in God's family. The term manage used here conveys the idea of governing, leading, and giving direction to the family. It demands an effective exercise of authority reinforced by a character of integrity and sensitive compassion. Manage in verse 5 equals, we would use the word care of, that he has care of his family, which defines the quality of leadership is related more to showing mercy than to delivering ultimatums. See, for the father to keep his children submissive does not demand excessive force or sternness. I think that's the way many of us were raised. If you have a little age or a little white in your hair or your beard, uh, the way his dad tended to be was everything was stern. It's in some ways a little excessive because you couldn't decide in your life what was really important. You know, wrecking the car was, got you in trouble and, and not making your bed got you in trouble. And both of those were sternly spoken to you. Uh, so the idea of the submissive children here isn't because the father is stern. It demands a primary um, character and manner of discipline that develops a natural respect. See, his children should show respect for their father and his excellent character and demeanor should draw out that response from them. Respect is one of those things that should be given by those people around you. See, this is a Christian home in which the husband and father exercises love for his wife and for his children. And if he does have children, they must be obedient children who reflect the skillful blend of authority and compassion in their being raised in this home with this father. Authority and compassion. He was to raise children known for their obedience and their morally upright behavior. Now, Paul indicated that the experience the leader gained in the home would develop sensitive compassion for his role in the church. Think of the home as a little bit of a laboratory, if you may, on how a man can be changed and effective so that when he steps into God's family to lead, He's already had a few bumps and bruises and a few of the rough edges taken off so that he's a good minister, that he's a good pastor or one who cares for the people. The development of proper leadership skills in the home was a prerequisite for using these skills in the church. See, Paul references God's church as the household of God, 1 Timothy 3.15. It underscores this close relationship between the home and the and the church. Paul, following Jesus' teaching, intended that the church leader exhort God's people to obedience, not by ruling over them with a heavy hand, but by showing the care and compassion of a servant leader. Now, the overseer's duty is to 
carry himself in such a way that the members of the church may be obedient to him, not as servants to a master, but as children to a father, that they may show him obedience and love. The skillful pastor will give to the church the type of leadership that will encourage his people to follow him. Not not one that's forcing them and yelling at them or bullying them or guilting them. But they will follow because they see his humility. They see his love. They see the character. They see a calling. And in this church, it was the church that said, yes, these men are qualified See, from family experience in the home to church family, the leader's experience is now extended to this humble Christian living and this self-awareness of his own weakness and need we see in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, the term recent convert uh, literally means newly planted. Newly planted. The condition of being a novice has more to do with spiritual rather than chronological age. Not all old people are spiritually mature and not all young people are fools. I have met some really foolish old people, I promise you. And I have met some young people who are wise beyond their years. And I know that has a lot to do with the way the parents have poured into them when that happens. But this isn't just about, just about age and the, the, how, how long you've lived, right? You don't necessarily just deserve this because you're old. See, the danger of appointing a recent convert to a place of leadership is that he may become a victim of conceit that comes with his important new position. To be conceited means to be blinded. The pride in, in the prominent position produces a blindness that blunts spiritual alertness. This phrase, fall into the condemnation of the devil, may have two different interpretations. It can refer either to the judgment the devil receives or the judgment that the devil causes. In verse 7, Paul describes Satan as setting a trap for the overseer. This seems to be the way the references in both verses 6 and 7 should be taken. He's setting these spiritual traps, these traps that Satan sets for these proud people. Those who become blind to Satan's work, they fall into defeat, into trouble, and ruin. Matter of fact, in 1 Timothy 6, 9, Paul described the progression of this fall this way. Listen to this. They're entangled, they're falling, they are entangled, and they're drowning. See, this is the sentence that Satan can inflict upon those spiritually insensitive leaders who believe that they are more important than they really are. Now, the 14th and final qualification takes us full circle back to the manner of his reputation, which is where we began. Look at verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not uh, fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, if the behavior of the leader does not present a credible witness, the devil can entrap the church by making outsiders leery and guarding from hearing and wanting to hear the gospel. This good reputation literally means a good witness. 
This is, a, this is an appeal for the church leader to have a good name and standing in the wider community. Now, the mention of this person's name shouldn't immediately provoke someone's mind to derision. You shouldn't say a person's name, or this, at least this leader's name, and the people's first response would be, oh, not him. Holy cow. No way, right? No way would I, would I go to that church. See, the behavior of the leader should provide an example of integrity and commitment to the gospel he professes. These outsiders that are mentioned here in this verse are unbelievers. It's not like a second tier or something inside the church. These are actual unbelieving people. They're out in the world, right? And the moral discernment of this well-informed outsider can be sound and worthy of respect. There's not many times that Paul's going to tell you to rush out into the world and then pay attention to what the world's telling you and then take that in and and decide what you want to do with it. In this case, he's saying, you know what? If you're going to hire a pastor, it'd be good to hear from a couple of unbelievers on about how he's treated people or what they know about him, right? And for you to take that quite seriously. If this unbeliever tells you, man, that guy, uh -uh, he's he's not worth anything. I I wouldn't trust him. And you should take that seriously. Now, I understand um, as Christians that we realize that unbelievers scrutinize our actions with tenacious searchlight of fault-finding investigation many times. But Paul's appeal is that the church leaders give no opportunities for unbelievers to find real fault in their life. Real fault that's there. All right, in closing... In the church in recent years, matters in such diverse fields as political opinion, social philosophy, women's ministries, and church music have been addressed publicly and sometimes divisively without sufficient knowledge. And elders can provide uh, and protect the flock of God from such detrimental influences as well as from heresy. Now, while one hopes that pastors would be informed on these matters, some may not. Some may not. Uh, They're out there building their own kingdoms. They're concerned with maybe how big the offering was this past week. Uh, Can they build that extra building on the other side of town? There's lots of things that are eating up their time rather than trying to protect the flock from these outsiders or maybe some even inside who are seeking to lead people astray in these manners, on these matters. Pastors who are theologically alert should make sure that the church is well informed on such basic biblical and theological topics. Elders must be aware of social influences and social influencers and how they have an impact on the congregation from the outside the church. It's possible for such opinion makers, those blue check people, to usurp the doctrinal authority of the local church, and pastors must be on guard and protecting their flock from such false teachers. That's an important part of what an elder is to do. Not only is he able to teach, he's also able to defend against wrong teaching. And it's, he can do this as an overseer or an elder or a pastor, and he can be a beautiful witness inside the church and outside the church with unbelievers. And he does this if he does a few things. 
if his reputation is above reproach, if his self-mastery is evidenced by being hospitable and able to teach, if his temperance is evidenced by not being a drunkard, if his temperament is not violent but gentle and not quarrelsome, if in respect to his money, he's not a lover of money, if in respect to his family, that be in order, and if his maturity is established. See, such a life will be a beautiful symmetry of that which would help to adorn the gospel. It might be good for all of us to look at these requirements for elders and overseers and realize that they really do not differ from requirements for many Christians seeking to live by the Spirit and not fulfill the flesh, but to live by the Spirit and fulfill the Spirit. You see, it would be easy today just to preach this text in such a way that if you don't feel you're called to be a pastor or an overseer, none of this makes any difference. But the reality is it does make a difference. It does make a difference because... All these things that are required of the overseer are required of all of us too. It's just part of being a Christian, right? He's just kind of laying it out and saying, you really need to make sure if you're going to put a man in a position like this, he really does fulfill all of this. And if I've called him, I've given him the giftings to do it. So just because he says I'm the guy doesn't necessarily mean he's the guy. Although these requirements may be for overseers, they are not outside the boundaries for those who claim to be Christian and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, I say that and then say thank you to you as a congregation because on behalf of Tony and myself, you make being pastors and elders a joy. One of the things that's spoken of in other parts of the pastoral letters is that elders and overseers are to do their job with joy. And to have a congregation that loves us and a congregation that walks with God We're not faultless. I'm not saying that. But walks with God and desires to honor God inside with your brothers and sisters and outside in a world that's watching you critically. It's a joy for us to be able to preach God's word and to be able to say we need to be on the lookout against what's bombarding us as Christians in philosophies, in social philosophies, in what seems to be right according to the way of the world that's being brought into the church. And so our commitment to you, not because we're just great guys, but because God's called us and because you trust us, is that we want to be these types of men, right? We know that there are areas, both of us know there are areas in our lives where some of these are stronger in this listing than others. I believe all of them are there, I just know that some of them are stronger for us and some of them are a little weaker areas and we want to work on those. But I encourage you and want to thank you as a congregation for being the type of people where we don't have to get into the problem that's at Ephesus. Right? Where you're diligent Bereans, you study the word, you ask the hard questions because the hard questions matter in life. And I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank God for the opportunity to be here with you as we walk through this together. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you again for your great mercies to us, especially to those you've
called as under shepherds. Lord, we know our frailties. We know the ways that we fail. And yet, Lord, you have called us this position. We're not greater than the sheep. We ourselves are sheep. But Father, would you help establish us? Would you strengthen us that we may do what is right and good and peaceable for your people? May we love them well. May we shepherd them well. May our hearts be humbled as we continue to see our deficiencies. And we know that your spirit makes up for those in many ways. Thank you for the patience and the long-suffering of this congregation. Thank you for the love that they have for us and especially the love that they have for you. Lord, would you enlarge and inflame and fill our hearts and in us your mighty power exert that thousands yet thousands unborn may praise the wonders of your redeeming grace because of the gospel that you've entrusted to us as your people. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our great shepherd. Amen.